Foundation Beyond Belief is a 501c3 nonprofit and does not endorse any candidates. Any political opinions expressed in this episode are the personal opinions of the hosts and do not reflect Foundation Beyond Belief's positions. Now to the episode. I was moving money from my savings account into my checking account so that your credit card payment won't bounce. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how to feel comfortable about what to do next with our employee situation. I'm Sarah Blaine. And I'm Evan Clark. Welcome to The Humanist Experience, a podcast series where we seek out transformative encounters that educate our emotions and refine our values, our responsibilities, and our hopes. This is our second in a three-part story about our year full of obstacles and failures and our case for hope. In our last episode, we told you it was going to be a two-part episode, but we failed a lot. And then hoped a lot. So during the production process, we decided this is going to be a three-part episode. And at the end of our last episode, things were pretty grim. And when it acts up, I get vertigo just from minor head motion or high-pitched noises or moving lights. I lose my balance and do things like run into walls or fall down. The consulting firm we run together, Spectrum Experience, was how we were funding the humanist experience. We had been earning money through communications consulting for humanist leaders, campaigns, and causes, but we were really struggling to keep up. We hit some major obstacles around health and finances, and we were running thin on hope. And I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to get better, and I didn't know what I was going to do if it didn't get better. We were sort of stranded in Jacksonville, Florida, at our friend Mark's apartment. We'd come into town hoping to work on a humanist experience episode about local refugee communities. But now we were in a weird limbo. We were faced with the possibility that Sarah's health might prevent her from being able to work on any more podcast episodes. Or continue running a business with me. All our big plans for our business and our podcast might fail. Even who I wanted to be as a person might not be possible for me. I do like the idea that I'm giving my kids my values and they're going to be agents for good in the world. And like, if their experience of growing up is just having a chronically sick mom who has a meaningless life, like I do, you know, that... I don't know how to... So then it's like, really, what's the point of me at all? We were getting caught in a self-defeating cycle of negative thinking, which can lead to negative consequences. Difficulties feel too large to surmount, and it's hard to see small steps that could lead towards change. So there's a lot of studies done, and some people look at optimism. That's been studied more than hope. So so we may have to extrapolate a little bit. But what we do know is that feeling hopeless can be associated with depression. 
That's Donna Hamilton, a medical doctor who uses integrated, evidence-based approaches in organizations around the country to improve health and well-being of team members. We interviewed her in February of this year as we looked back on our previous year. We wanted to learn more about our interactions with hope and how that interaction affected our mental, emotional, social, and physical health. Um, we also know that negative thinking, which can you know, be another kind of proxy for feeling hopeless, that actually can trigger the fear center in your brain. And then the mind and the body affect each other. So there's, it sets up a whole big cascade. If your fear center in your brain is triggered, that sets up your fight or flight response, which triggers a whole myriad of, of stress um, responses in your body. In retrospect, it's easy to see we were stuck in the big cascade of negative thinking and stress responses. We needed to get unstuck. And as we look back, we can see how that process started with some teeny, nearly imperceptible shifts that moved us towards hope. Beginning with a quip about time over a bowl of grape nuts. I was in Mark's living room blindly crocheting hats because it was about the only thing I could do without moving my eyes. Mark sat on the floor next to me, eating grape nuts and listening to me complain about how useless I felt. How I hadn't done anything in almost two months. How I was just wasting time. He paused, looking thoughtful, with his spoon halfway to his mouth, and said, I'm not sure I believe there's wasted time, and put the spoon in his mouth. And the concept of wasted time we could debate all day, but Mark wasn't offering a truth claim. He was offering a psychological frame. Mark's grape nut wisdom made me reflect on my own psychological frame, and that frame was defeatist. I saw everything I couldn't do. The time I was spending was time not doing things. I saw it as empty. I wasn't noticing anything I might be learning through reading or conversation or just having an experience. My thinking and behavior was also becoming increasingly unproductive. I didn't see any options. I was avoiding work in the apartment because I couldn't identify a way to be productive. And by not doing anything productive, the sense of defeat just continues to grow. Something else that we can do is pay attention to our own inner landscape. You know, many people just kind of on autopilot. Um, But think about what you're thinking about. Think about your beliefs, your own beliefs, your expectations, your own assumptions, so that you can be uh, much more mindful about them. And you can even kind of check yourself sometimes if you find find that you're going in a downward spiral. Mark's comment about wasted time caused us to check in on our inner landscape and see that we were indeed in a downward spiral. We needed to give ourselves a sense of direction and purpose, even in a difficult situation where we didn't have the power to change some of the variables. And so then I decided I might as well just call, like, the expert of the experts that everybody has told me uh, is the guy doing the research on this and he's in Phoenix and he'll, that appointment will be sev- several months out too, but 
but I know he's the guy. If anybody's going to know, it'll be him. And and I was also thinking, like, even if he doesn't have good solutions for me right now, he's he's working on the research, and like maybe I could participate in a study or um, something that would make use out of the situation. Once Ra made an appointment with an expert in the field of neuroautology. Ne- neuroautology. Right. Neuroautology. It's a neurologist and otologist together in one. Okay. Then we had some hope. And by hope, we're not just talking about a feeling, although emotions are a part of hope. But hope is more than a feeling. It's a complex cognitive motivational system that allows us to make meaning out of our experiences, to learn, and to find opportunities. Hope is a thought process, not just an emotional experience. When you're feeling hopeful, when you're feeling positive emotions, that can trigger the reward center in your brain. So not only do you feel, you know, kind of more pleasurable, you feel happy, Um, That's what your reward center does. But the reward center in your brain can calm that fear center. So it actually settles down the stress response. So so it's not just about positive thinking um, or, or telling yourself things. It actually sets up physical responses and reactions in your body. Having hope wasn't going to guarantee any successes for us. It wouldn't take away the sense of failure that kept building. And Sarah was still sick. It was still overwhelming. We didn't have any strong evidence that the future would be better. But by injecting a little bit of hope into our situation, by viewing it through an optimistic frame, we were activating a physiological neurochemical process that actually makes people more successful at capitalizing on opportunities around them. Accepting optimism literally changes our neurochemistry to make ourselves happier and more productive. Hope, uh, at least, you know, as I use the word, it's about believing that something is possible. So when you believe and expect that something is possible, then it causes you to look for it. So when you're feeling hopeful, then you're like, okay, well, there is a solution. Let's find it. If there were new opportunities, we were going to try to find them. Even considering something as small as the potential of being in a trial for a researcher was a way for me to think more positively about what I could accomplish in difficult circumstances. So thinking about what we could do rather than what we couldn't, what skills and resources did we have in front of us? Instead of focusing on failing to get out the podcast, Were there other things we could do successfully? What opportunities did we have if we paused our work on the podcast and headed back to Arizona for medical care? Hi, it's Michael Weiser, running for Congress here in Congressional District 4 in Bullhead City this afternoon, where I first moved to Arizona. We're here to make sure that we bring the fight to everybody, especially in the rural parts of the state, about education, Immigration and legal- you might remember Michael from the first season of The Humanist Experience, where he tells the story of his experience with anti-gay violence. Boom! He hits me in the face with a crescent wrench. 
Michael is an idealistic poet who is at the heart of a social justice movement to end marijuana prohibition in Arizona. We met him in 2014 when we ran a congressional race for a progressive atheist, James Woods. Can't say we saw this coming, maybe because we didn't get an invite from this guy, James Woods, a blind, openly atheist Arizonan hoping to represent the good folks of Gilbert in the U.S. Congress. You ain't from around here, are you? Actually, he is. And he hosted a media day on Sunday trying to reach out to the non-theistic journalists and the like, many of whom posted their interviews online, flooding Twitter. It turned out that our publicity successes from the Woods campaign had made other candidates want to come out about their secular views. And they were asking us for help. Michael called us while we were in Jacksonville to tell us he was launching his third bid for the U.S. Congress in Arizona in his very red 4th Congressional District, and he wanted us to join his team. He wasn't the only one asking us to come back to Arizona. Here we go again. This is going to be the golden one right here. This is the golden one. Legislature. Legislature. (laughs) Okay. District 3. Okay, add that in. Just kidding. Hi. Hi, I'm Ryan Winkle. I'm running for city council in District 3. Ryan Winkle, a young, innovative community leader and humanist, was running for city council in Mesa, Arizona. He had already hired us for his initial branding and messaging, and he was hoping we'd be available for more. Oh, and the calls kept coming. And coming. One of the things that's really beautiful about Arizona is the diversity of our families. We have families that are made up of immigrants from all over the world. We have families headed by strong single parents who work twice as hard to give their kids the best opportunities. And we have resilient LGBTQ families that raise beautiful and compassionate children. Scott and Kara Pryor are progressive atheists who wanted to run for the Arizona State House and Senate. Their goal was to inject progressive values into the public conversation. They were also asking us to staff their campaigns. And it felt good to be getting all this positive attention for the work we'd done on the Woods campaign. But realistically, could we take on clients right now? Going back into politics wasn't what we'd hoped to be doing for the next six months. We'd planned to keep traveling and keep growing this podcast. And we didn't know how my health situation was going to resolve. But we did know that Arizona had some medical options. It was also a place for the flourishing humanist community to surround ourselves with, and Sarah has family there, which would be important if her health didn't improve. We had some decisions to make. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Something really amazing happened this past month. Our listeners and supporters helped us successfully raise $10,000 through Kickstarter. A big thanks to everyone who contributed, and a special thanks to Chris Wojno, Mark Zafrin, Don Clark, Dean Nosek, Matthew Farron, and Jackson Piper for their generosity. We are also really excited to announce that starting in our second season, The Humanist Experience is now the official podcast of the national nonprofit Foundation Beyond Belief. FBB is a humanist charity that promotes secular volunteering and responsible charitable giving. 
We think that a lot of um, volunteering, both inside and outside the U.S., is actually pretty unintentionally harmful in a lot of ways. And so we first try to avoid those harms and then uh, second, try to put volunteers in place uh, who can have a positive impact and also train them to have that, that positive impact. That's humanist heartthrob Connor Robinson, the program director for Foundation Beyond Belief. We talked to Connor about what makes Foundation Beyond Belief unique. We're looking specifically at trying to embody the values of humanism in action for the world to see. But then also we are, you know, really trying to wrestle with the questions of what it actually means to apply humanist values to service. Foundation Beyond Belief is a natural fit for the humanist experience. Our podcast seeks to contextualize facts about social injustice, then through experience and storytelling, motivate listeners to act. And Foundation Beyond Belief provides the network of humanist volunteer groups our listeners can connect with for action. There are currently more than 125 groups. We've got uh, we just had one come in, one application come in the other day from a group in Zimbabwe. As the official podcast of Foundation Beyond Belief, donations supporting the humanist experience are now tax deductible. Visit our website at www.humanistexperience.com and click support. That will take you to our Foundation Beyond Belief donation page. Thanks for partnering with us and Foundation Beyond Belief to build a more humanist world. Okay, decision time. We knew we'd have challenges ahead, but ultimately, we were being presented with an unprecedented opportunity to put humanist values into public political conversations. Hope was pushing us toward Arizona. So when I say hope and when I hear the word hope, um, I take that to mean um, belief in a possibility of an, of an outcome that you desire. Hope is about believing that what you desire is possible and not necessarily focusing on the probability of it. The possibility was that we might be able to bring on enough clients to hire staff. That meant that even if Sarah's health was still a barrier to work, we'd have help running the business. We could really start to grow it. What we desired felt possible, even if it wasn't the most probable outcome. We didn't have everything figured out. Nope. The financial projections we were making, they were not certainties. But it did look like if we worked really hard and brought on an employee, we might just be able to pull off a successful year despite the many road bumps. We hired somebody. Not just anybody, though. We hired the man. <laughs> the man. The mystery. <laughs> Andre Soleil. Andre Soleil. So we hired Andre Soleil. Phoenix-based humanist activist and a political organizer who happens to be the producer of our podcast in his spare time. We say his name at the end of every episode, if you haven't noticed. Um, if you're like me, you're probably just dancing to that awesome music and listening about the guests and bloopers, but... There's bloopers. He's there. There's bloopers? Let's keep going. 
Andre would take on the nuts and bolts of our campaigns and enable us to grow our capacity. It's weird thinking about this this company that I started right. years ago. And you dream of someday being able to hire somebody. And when you first file the paperwork to get a company, they send you info on employee stuff. Yeah. And I just didn't even know what to do with it. I remember looking at that stuff and go, oh, that'll be fun to I fill know. out someday. <laughs> and then, yeah, here we were. And we wrote up a job description. And we got the price set, gave him an offer. Yeah. And he turned down a really nice job with GoDaddy. <laughs> come work for us in this election cycle yeah we we created a job job creators creators. with andre on our team and eventually two interns as well we were feeling productive again and deeply enjoying the work we were doing we got to build campaign platforms based on the humanist values we're passionate about like equality reason compassion innovation and sustainability. And we connected with another congressional candidate, Talia Fuentes, who's an applied biologist who asked us to write a STEAM-based platform for her. STEAM means science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. That's so cool. It was really cool. Hope was doing its job. We were motivated to find opportunities and to work hard on making the most of them. Hope led us to more clients who shared our values, and they wanted to work with us. My name is Aisha Graves, and I am the best candidate to represent the people of Legislative District 13. I'm Athena Salman, and I approve this message. My name is Simon Golistan, and I approve this message. And that's why I'm running for the Arizona State House. Yo soy Isela Blanc, y apruebo este mensaje. Hope helped us seize some great opportunities. But it did not solve everything. For example, hope did not give us business sense. We still had a few things to learn about navigating client contracts and balancing our overhead sensibly. I do think at some point I should check my bank records while recording. (laughs) See how... Oh my God. Well, and I just, that's what I was doing right before you, like I was moving money from my savings account into my checking account so that your credit card payment (laughs) won't bounce. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Running our business was expensive. And while we'd gotten our expenses really, really low. We eat a lot of lentils. Our overhead at the outset of the campaigns was just much higher than what we were asking for up front from the clients. In addition to paying an employee, we brought on contractors for photography and design work. We needed things like gas, software, and equipment. These costs were adding up faster than the revenue. We weren't just not making a profit. We were hemorrhaging money on our campaigns, and for much longer than we had made financial plans for. Hope had brought us out of a rut and enabled us to see solutions. But now we had gotten ourselves into a financial hole. What if this time we were genuinely out of solutions? How would we know? Without revenue, paying Andre and our contractors was draining my savings account, and everything else was going on Evan's credit cards. We made a commitment to Andre to employ him through the end of the year. 
but we were less and less sure we weren't going to run out of money first. Yeah, I don't know how to feel comfortable about what to do next with our employee situation. Yeah. Because um, our options are to scrape together as much money as possible to like make sure he can still make his bills. Yeah. Well, and this is that weird space between um, smart business sense as business exists in a capitalist world and also being humanists. Like, we don't want to fuck our guy, you know? Like, right. Um, so I do feel an obligation to making sure that he's financially okay through the through the weather we had a lot of discussions about how close to financial ruin we were willing to go before giving up how much risk we were willing to take on and the scarier conversation how much risk we were willing to ask andre to take on should we tell him to look for other work just in case were we unfairly risking his livelihood Each time we debated it, we ended up deciding it was still possible if we worked hard and kept hunting for solutions. And by worked hard, we mean really, really, really hard. Tell us about canvassing, Evan. What was that like? I think I spent about four months canvassing in Phoenix this year. Was it the coolest months of the year that you canvassed? <laughs> I think we canvassed March, April, May, June, and July. Right, so we were collecting signatures for candidates until the end of May, and then we were knocking on doors through the primary for candidates right into the 115 degree days in July. And you guys, I remember like looking at our schedule and there was a week that you guys were just like we're gonna do 100 hours this week we're gonna work 100 hours yeah we got down to the point where it didn't feel like we had any other options there was definitely a a multi-week period where we we logged 90 to 100 hours a week in work just didn't know when to stop The intensity of our work days was taking a toll. The physical strain was impacting our psychological health. We were exhausted, and we were once again experiencing a growing lack of optimism and motivation. We needed more hope, but we weren't doing any of the right things to cultivate hope, including caring for our own well-being. Can't give from an empty cup. Right. So especially when you're talking about social activism and community service, you can't give what you don't have. One thing that we can do is really focus on our own health and well-being. And some for some people that might feel very selfish. But like I said, you can't give from a, um, from an empty cup. Right. So we need to be very clear about making our health and well-being a priority, you know, picking goals, making sure that we're practicing a lot of the essential healthy habits. Our cups, they were running on empty. Sometimes mine had vodka in it. 
that a metaphor? Or were you literally sneaking vodka the whole campaigns? That's between me and Jesus. Vodka's a depressant, Sarah. You shouldn't fill your empty hope cup with vodka. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> okay, wait. I've, this is a segue, Evan. This works. I was going to fill my hope cup with an exciting new medical breakthrough to cure vestibular migraine. Right. It took several months, but Sarah finally had her appointment with one of the doctors spearheading research on vestibular migraines. Yeah, so basically what the doctor said is that um, there, are n- there really aren't any good trials that have been done on vestibular migraine. Um, and what few have been those medications I've already tried. So... It's essentially what I'm taking right now. So then he was like, we have a lot of like working theories about what kinds of medications might have an impact on vestibular migraine based on our loose understanding of the mechanism. It was basically like, we, we don't really know. My point is, he has no idea. <laughs> and I was like, well, are there, are there trials? And he was like, like, I wouldn't be a good candidate for them because like the first stage in trials is always the simplest they're going to try treating with one medication and people who are newly diagnosed versus somebody who's been on a bunch of things and yeah and then unfortunately the trials that are being done right now aren't going to help me because they're basically trials to validate the medications that I'm already trying so how did it feel hearing that that was frustrating (laughs) but he did say like, I'm still a case study, though. So they still enter all my information into their database and stuff. So I like feeling useful to science. I think actually the most disappointing thing about it was that... I think I've told you about how I've read that some vestibular disorders, they will actually sever the vestibular nerve or kill it in some way. Right. And because migraine is a complicated system they're not even sure that that's the only system involved in it so doing something that drastic might not even work the one thing that was like probably a bad option but at least like if there's nothing else that at least we could just rip the nerve out that 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 wouldn't necessarily work so yeah and so now it feels like i've got this list of things i could try and no good way to discern what choice is the, you know. So that was kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, I did not get to fill my empty cup with awesome new medical technology. Or money. Our empty cups were not filling with money. (laughs) We didn't think our cups could get any emptier. But after draining thousands of dollars out of my savings account and putting thousands of dollars on Evan's credit cards, we kept finding deeper and deeper emptiness. So where are we and why are we here? (laughs) I don't have an answer to those questions, Evan. Those are deep existential questions. So we're in Prescott, Arizona um, at my friend Dina's house because she's in Ecuador for the, for the summer and part of the fall. So we get to house sit. It's a lovely, comfortable location. Thank you, Dina. Okay, so it's late July right now. And 
about half a year ago, we put out our last episode. Well, not our last episode forever, though. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what happened? <laughs> oh my goodness. All the things. Well, I mean, the good thing that happened is, like, we have all the clients, <laughs> but um, none of them have paid us yet. <laughs> Michael's tried. But, yeah. So, right now we're exhausted. We just had to lay off our employee. Yeah, uh, because we're broke. <laughs> okay, so things were bad. Really bad. I literally didn't have enough money to pick up my prescriptions. I was eating meals only at friends' houses because I'd run out of money to buy groceries. A lot of the hopeful decisions we'd made were good ones, but... We had definitely made some really poor management decisions as well. But the reason the story doesn't end here is because we'd also done some things right. We'd surrounded ourselves with a great network of creative, optimistic, hardworking people who cared about us and our work. Being around hopeful people or positive people, there's a lot of research that actually shows that our um, social network has a significant influence on our health and well-being, not just behaviors and thoughts, not, not just thoughts, but also behaviors. And this is not necessarily just your immediate circle, but even your friends' friends can have an influence on, on your health, and even if you don't necessarily know those friends. So surround yourself with positive people, who, however you define positive. People in our network stepped up when they realized we'd let Andre go, and that we were out of money for our personal needs as well. Andre did work a side job for about a week, but during that time, Aisha Graves, one of our candidates running for the state house, hustled and fundraised to pay early on part of her contract to tide us over until our other contracts paid out. And Talia Fuentes, our congressional candidate with the STEAM platform, she volunteered to canvas for several of our other campaigns during the time Andre had to work elsewhere and she continued volunteering for us throughout the election. In the end, we were able to keep Andre through the end of the year. And the positive people in our lives filled our cups and our morale. It was a hard year. We had a lot of challenges behind us and we still had a lot ahead. And there were things like my vestibular disorder that we could not control, and we were going to have to keep working around them. We'd learned some hard lessons about running a business, and we were going to need to work on developing sound business skills to keep doing this type of work in the future. But what we found was that choosing hope brought us more rewards than failures, and the experience of hopefulness is just a better experience than despair. Hope is both pleasant and practical. Hope got us through the election. Well, I mean, it got us up to the election. Yeah, it kept us motivated up until the election. And we had some big wins both personally and for our state. 
but we were not prepared for what happened on the national stage on election night. Oh my God, he just went North Carolina. Do you want the bad news or do you want to just wait? All right, Trump just went North Carolina. That upped his chances a lot. Okay, Okay, so what does Silver say now? Uh, 60, 61% for Trump, chance for Trump. We were hosting an election night party with the Prescott Freethinkers and Prescott Progressives. We had intended it to be a victory party for progressive humanist values. Oh my God, they just called Florida for him. Let's go look. Let's go look. Oh, 77%. That's higher than, what was the original one for for Hillary, for Clinton? 75? Originally? Yeah, it was 74. It was 70. Oh man, that's huge for Trump. We kept watching returns in disbelief. We knew that some of our local candidates were going to lose, but on the national stage, the expected outcome just wasn't happening. Trump might pull this out. I wonder what I was doing in the popular vote. Uh, I wonder if I have that for one of these websites. Clinton could win the popular vote and still lose. <laughs> That's always fascinating. Evan kept giving me the numbers while I socialized with guests. Those numbers just rolled off. I thought the result was already decided. What a Trump win would mean for the marginalized communities in our state and the children in our lives was sinking in for Evan. But I was still sure progressive values would take the night. Jesus Christ, I'm just thinking, I'm talking to Regina right now, like... So it sounds like I, no, I'm just I'm processing the fact that the Supreme Court is going to be decided by Republican Senate, Republican President, and Charlotte has to grow up in that, and it's like all processing. And then, around 2:30 a.m., Hillary Clinton conceded to Donald Trump. Next time on The Humanist Experience. It is the case, as a matter of fact, that human beings have made major moral progress. We have come to understand our ethical responsibilities to each other better than we did before. And we have been able to work with each other to improve conditions in society for millions upon millions of people. And that is a fact. And so because I can look back and say, no, our ancestors achieved amazing things in terms of forcing society to change and they were against extraordinary odds as well and they were able to do it that gives me hope if you would like to support the humanist experience you can find the link to donate to our work at humanistexperience.com once again that's humanistexperience.com as the official podcast of the national 501c3 nonprofit foundation beyond belief Gifts to the humanist experience are tax-deductible. 
Another way to support the podcast is to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever fancy podcast app you use. It really helps us grow the podcast visibility. Also, make sure to follow our journeys across the country on Facebook and Instagram. We post all our hilarious behind-the-scenes photos and videos there. Special thanks for this episode go to our guest, Dr. Donna Hamilton. Visit her website at manifestexcellence.com. And for her free guide to essential healthy habits, go to manifestexcellence.com slash health guide. Also, thanks to our energizer bunny, Gustavo Youngberg, and our development associate and composer for some of the songs you hear in our podcast, Eric Zakazukini. We can't forget our producer in 2016 rock, Andre Soleil at Unbelievers Media. He started his own consulting firm called Method Social Kinetics after working with us. We recommend you check it out if you're looking for a campaign strategy expert. Learn more at methodsk.com. The Humanist Experience is produced in collaboration with Unbelievers Media, LLC, and is the official podcast of Foundation Beyond Belief. We're your hosts, Evan Clark and Sarah Blaine, and we'll see you next time. That's Dr. Donna Hamilton. Oh, I just called her a doctor, and then I'm going to call her a doctor again. That's Dr. Dr. Donna. That's a line from Doctor Who.